Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. Another highly requested topic for us to cover is firearm injury, the latest public health crisis. We have as our guests, Drs. Brendan Campbell and Joseph Sacharin. Dr. Campbell is Chair of Pediatric Surgery and Director of Trauma at Connecticut Children's Hospital. He obtained his MD from the University of Connecticut, completed his residency at the University of North Carolina, and completed a Clinical Scholars Program, ECMO Fellowship, and Master's in Public Health at the University of Michigan during residency. He also completed his Pediatric Surgery Fellowship at Arkansas Children's Hospital. Notably, he is a firearm owner and member of the ACS Committee on Trauma Firearm Strategy Team that authored a paper with recommendations that was published in the Journal of the American College of Surgeons in February. Dr. Sacharin is an assistant professor of surgery and director of emergency general surgery at Johns Hopkins. He completed his medical training at the Ben-Gurion University Medical School for International Health in Israel, followed by surgical residency at Innova Fairfax Hospital and a surgical critical care fellowship at Penn Presbyterian Hospital. He has been featured in the media for his personal history of a life-threatening firearm injury and gun control advocacy. Thank you both for joining us today. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's just start off with each of you briefly telling us a little bit about yourselves, where you're from, and, and why you chose to get into trauma. All right. Well, uh, you know, I am from Fairfax, Virginia, born and raised there. And uh, really, my involvement in trauma has to do with a personal uh, story, having been uh, nearly killed at the age of 17 after uh, being shot in the throat. And so uh, I think I bring a little bit of a different perspective, having been a patient now provider. And uh, I also really, you know, consider myself someone that's trying to think about how do we not just care for the patients after they've been injured, but how do we prevent these injuries from ever happening? So I grew up in Connecticut. And first exposure to firearms was in Boy Scout camp when I was about 12 years old. And I progressively became more interested in, uh, in guns and have been hunting for a long time. Uh, when I finally decided to go to medical school uh, I, uh, and, and settle on, on pediatric surgery, ultimately, uh, you have to realize as a pediatric surgeon that you know, the, the leading cause of death from the first birthday up you know, through your 20s is, is, is trauma. And when you start to think about trauma, you have to think about, you know, pretty critically about, you know, trauma is the one area in medicine and surgery where you'd like to put yourself out of business and how can we prevent injuries. And when you begin to think about that, uh, certainly firearm injury and car crashes come to mind. And that's where being involved in ad advocacy is critically important. All right. So jumping right into our topic, we're going to try something a little bit different and have a point counterpoint style discussion of firearm safety. Uh, to start, uh, how about... Uh, with the issue at hand, Dr. Sacharin, why is this a public health concern? Well, this is a, a public health crisis because, uh, you know, by definition, you have a complex health problem that is occurring in uh, geographic locations all across this country. And it's not just the 40,000 deaths that are happening. Uh, for every one of those deaths, we know that at least two to three uh, non-fatal injuries occur. Uh, so this is a real 
uh, issue that's affecting uh, communities all across this nation. And Dr. Campbell, you can also give your kind of shed light on what you think about the public health crisis, but also um, as part of the FAST work group with the ACS Committee on Trauma, if you could summarize the recommendations from that recent publication, which we'll link to in our show notes, that'd be great. So the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma, under the leadership of Drs. Ronnie Stewart and Eileen Bolger, have done something really extraordinary. Uh, they've taken on the issue of firearm violence and, and made it a priority. And by making it a priority, they've brought it to the level of consciousness, not only for, you know, trauma surgeons, but, you know, for really all surgeons and all Americans. And what they have done, which is important, is they've come at this from the middle. You know, you're not going to make any meaningful progress on this issue if you work at extremes. And you have to engage advocates, stakeholders on both sides of the issue. And one of the things that they did, which was really brilliant, is created this FAST work group, the Firearm Strategy Team. And what this group was, was 18 surgeons who are leaders uh, in education and research uh, in, from all over the United States who uh, are, are also passionate gun owners and got them together. And we had a series of conference calls. Then last June, June of 2018, we got together in Chicago and we said, hey, what are the things uh, that we think would be important and could potentially make a difference on the issue of gun violence? And some examples of that are universal background checks. You know, that there's there's a big loophole uh, that happens for all of at, at gun shows. And, you know, background checks, you know, are, are something that it should be a no-brainer. That's one of the topics. Other things, federal funding for research. You know, if you want to fix the problem, you have to understand the problem. And if we're not doing research on it, uh, we're not going to be able to do that as effectively. Other things uh, that, you know, we talked about uh, holding, um, you know, gun owners responsible uh, if their guns are used in crimes or are not stored safely. That's something that we had unanimous agreement on among the group. So, uh, I'll leave it at that, but I, I think you know the, the, those recommendations are shocking to some people. But uh, but those are things that that gun, you know, surgeon gun owners uh, support unanimously, or at least that group did. I was just going to make a quick comment about that because I think what Dr. Campbell um, has highlighted is so important from a variety of perspectives. The first is, you know, not only has the American College of Surgeons approached this, I think, in a very thoughtful way, but you know, recently they've also brought together medical organizations all across this country in order to break down those silos that exist so we can figure out how do we work together as healthcare professionals from different disciplines to actually be able to move the needle forward on this. And one of the things to me that's so interesting about the FAST group findings is that all those recommendations that you see is an exact representation of how, as Americans, we have a lot more in common than we have that divides us. And so, you know, I think we have to take these recommendations and really, you know, look at them and understand that really that polarization that exists and so many people talk about is really not that wide. 
And and that's the perfect segue into what we're going to do here with the point counterpoint. You know, we want to raise some questions and arguments that we commonly hear. But ultimately, the way we started off is the way that we are going to finish that you two, you may have different perspectives on gun ownership, which I don't even know if that is true. But at the end of the day, you are both surgeons, you are both trauma surgeons, you see these patients, and just like every surgeon on the fast group who owns guns, every Everyone is in agreement about the patient care aspect, and we just want our listeners to keep that in mind as we go through the this next segment. So diving right in, Dr. Campbell, let's start with you. So you advocate for gun control, and the far left advocates taking away all guns, uh, not just removing them from at-risk individuals, individuals, but all guns. So point, the argument can be made that you can't screen all individuals to identify those at risk. How do you respond to this? Well, a couple of things. First, I'm not going to say that I advocate for gun control because that's not exactly accurate. You know, what I advocate for is safe firearm ownership. We've got 300 million firearms in this country. Uh, they're a part of our culture, and, and it would be it, it would be short-sighted to think that you're going to be able to t- get rid of all firearms the way they did in Australia or something like that. But I, I think what you want to do is you want to look at the problem and say, okay, what types of things can we do that might make a difference? You know, we talked about background checks already, but, you know, universal background checks, you have, you know, the, the general population supports that, the uh, vast majority of gun owners support that, you know, that would be a good uh, step in the right direction. Uh, I think there are also other opportunities where, you know, we have systems in place that don't work as effectively as they could where you have people who should not be allowed to purchase firearms who are able to. So having, you know, IT systems, you know, between the states and within the federal government that work and function more effectively is another solution that, you know, making that work better doesn't require any new and additional gun laws. So Dr. Sakharin, from the other perspective, just like Dr. Campbell actually said just now, is that using the term gun control has fallen out of favor because it it brings up fears that um, we're impeding on the Second Amendment. But point, Japan and Australia are frequently used examples of countries that have stricter gun laws. And, you know, research will likely point that the U.S. should head in that direction, right? So the messaging piece that you talk about is very critical. It's very clear to me that the words that we use actually do matter. And so I actually never use the term gun control because that's not really what we're doing. We have a public health problem, and this problem is related to an exorbitant amount of firearm-related injury and death in America. And any complex health problem like this there's a couple important things to recognize. The first is that it can't be solved by one person or one organization. The second is that it can't be solved by one solution. So approaching this issue requires a multifaceted approach. And so when you look at other countries, it's clear to me that, yes, Japan doesn't have the problem that we have, uh, and part of it has to do with the access to firearms. And when you look at the data that's out there, we know that having access to firearms increases, you know, the risk of suicide in the home, increases the risk of homicide in the home, and so forth. Uh, but I, I think that 
as we look to really kind of figure out how do we ensure that we allow people to have the freedom and to have that constitutional right, but not without the responsibility that's required in order to ensure that we don't have, you know, kids shooting their brothers within their homes and so forth. So that's critical. Dr. Campbell, by nature of the machine, guns are not safe. They are meant to harm. So point. Firearm safety innovation and advances we made with automobiles like seatbelts are not comparable at all. You can't make a weapon safe. You need to take them away. What's your response to this comment? Well, I would disagree with that from the perspective that there are millions of Americans who own guns and do so safely in the United States. Uh, you know, I would, uh, I would say that there, there are people who, who know how, and they, you know, they, they educate, uh, their children, they take courses, they, they implement measures to mitigate risk. Now, uh, one of the problems is, you know, in, in the aftermath of the Sandy Hook, uh, tragedy, which happened not very far from where we're sitting, uh, today, but right around that time, the American Academy of Pediatrics had said, we need to implement primary prevention to reduce the burden of firearm injury and death. Here's the problem with that statement. We don't have any proven primary prevention measures to, uh, you know, to prevent pediatric uh, injury with guns. And, you know, we have to study that. We have to, we have to devise appropriate anticipatory guidance and ways of delivering it uh, for clinicians to be able to d deliver to their patients and the parents of their patients so that we can uh, make firearm ownership as safe as possible. One other point relating to that. In uh, 2018, the most widely read paper in the American Journal of Public Health was a survey of gun owners in the United States. And one of the questions they were asked is, you know, who is the best messenger for, 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 for gun owners in the United States to receive firearm safety? Uh, information. Uh, what, what percentage do you think said physicians were that? It was about 17%. And what percent do you think said the National Rifle Association is? It was about 80%. So, you know, that, that, that tells you a couple of things, but one of the things that it tells you is that we as physicians need to find a better way to communicate the message about safe firearm ownership in this country. You know, I, I wanted to actually say something about the communication between clinicians and patients, because I think uh, Dr. Campbell hits a really important point, is right now, when you look at clinicians, and we're not just talking about surgeons, just clinicians in general across the country, the comfort level of talking about aspects like safe storage of firearms varies significantly. Part of that variation exists because not all physicians grew up with firearms like Dr. Campbell. Part of it might be a geographic cultural piece. So they're in South Texas versus here in Boston. And so, you know, the question that I always think of is how do we raise that level of knowledge and skill set so clinicians can speak to this issue in an intelligent manner and actually respond to patients' questions and concerns? and ensure that the delivery of the message is done in a way that's objective and that's nonpartisan. So currently, part of this, uh, I'm part of this 
presidential leadership program that my project specifically works on in a bipartisan fashion between the Bush Centers and the Clinton Center and Lyndon B. Johnson to create a safe storage toolkit so we can raise that level. So I think that's so critical because we talked earlier about how there's 5 million kids that, or nearly 5 million kids that live in homes with unlocked and loaded weapons, but there's also, you know, people that are committing suicide because of the easy access to, to firearms. So figuring out how we can, you know, tackle some of those aspects are critical. So along those lines, when you're talking about safe storage or implementing some sort of mm, holding like accountability, basically, when things are made illegal, when people are held accountable under the law, we know that that backfired with the prohibition. It can backfire with drugs. People will find a way to do what they want. People will find a way to manipulate their guns to bypass any safety measures that we could potentially find, um, you know, affect uh, this firearm injury prevention. So haven't we learned our lesson? Point being, shouldn't we stop trying to make these efforts knowing that people are just going to go back and revert to the way that they want it to be. Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting statement. I mean, then you could make the argument that, well, we shouldn't just have any laws at all. You know, why have a speed limit law and why have the need to have a driver's license? And, you know, I mean, the the list just goes on. So I, I think we heard Dr. Campbell um, make a really important point, which is something that doesn't always get transmitted. Most gun owners are responsible gun owners. And in fact, I will tell you, I don't think the problem that exists in this country are the gun owners. I think that there is a false narrative that exists because frankly, and this might not be popular with everyone, but there's a disparity of thought that exists between the leadership of the gun lobby and the membership. And I don't think that the leadership represents the membership. And we've seen that in a variety of ways. For example, universal background checks. 74% of NRA members support it, not to mention the majority of gun owners that's even higher than that and over 90% of Americans. So how come, you know, they continue to put up roadblocks when it comes to things like HR8 that's now stuck in the Senate? It's partisan politics, and it has nothing to do with really representing the true beliefs of responsible gun owners. I think the one thing that I would just add to that is when you have a civil and honest discussion with most Americans and most gun-owning Americans and frame the context of sensible restrictions on firearms in a way that, you know, you say, hey, if we put universal background checks in place or we, you know, require, as they do in Connecticut, uh, a some sort of identification card, either a pistol permit or a, a, another type of government-issued documentation to be able to buy ammunition – And if you frame that in the context of it's going to make you safer in your home, it's going to make the schools where I send my kids uh, to get their education in public schools safer, most people are going to say, hey, I'm willing to live with that restriction because it's going to make, uh, make, make our society a safer place. Dr. Campbell, many ACS, so American College of Surgeons members, are also NRA members. Uh, The NRA contributes hundreds of millions of dollars to campaigns and lobbying, whereas the ACS Political Action Committee is lobbying for funding research on firearm safety. And it seems that as a member of both groups, physicians may be putting their money in opposing efforts. 
do they need to pick a side? Isn't this hypocritical? Well, this is the the whole idea of uh, medical organizations donating to politicians who support things related to firearms. You know, is a hotly contested thing. And you know, if you talk to the to any medical organization, they're going to say we're not a one issue group, so they're not going to change how they donate money. And if if you listened, you know, even at this meeting we're at, the American Pediatric Surgical Association, when somebody talks about their the, the APSA or the American College of Surgeons Political Action Committee, you know, they're going to donate to whichever party is going to support the, the medical issues of the organization, not guns, not tobacco and other things. Um, you know, with respect to the National Rifle Association, they do some, some, some things that, that m- most gun owners disagree with. Some of the, the, the legislation they support and some of the, 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 the things they do are really deplorable. And I'll say that from a gun owner's perspective. But I'm also going to actually compliment the NRA on something that they do. You know, they teach firearm safety, uh, the same way that, 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 uh, that all sorts of other, uh, hunting and firearm organizations teach it. You know, they certify instructors and they help make firearm ownership safer in the United States. So, so there are things that we can partner with the NRA on, but, um, but, you know, I, I think, you know, we, we've, we've got to, uh, call them out when they do, you know, silly things with respect to, to blocking common sense legislation to make our country safer. And I'll just add just a couple things because I think the important point that your listeners have to really understand is the first thing that Dr. Campbell said, which is the American College of Surgeons and many of these other organizations are not one-issue organizations. Despite me not wanting them to donate to political candidates that you know are supported by the NRA, I understand that at any one time, the college is taking on 35 to 40 issues that affect the health care of Americans all across this country. And so if you talk to anyone from our D.C. office, they will tell you that. And so, you know, I, I've seen the articles that have come out, and I think it's just important to, you know, again, you got to peel back the layers and really understand the issue. Uh, it's not as simple as it seems. I'm a general surgery resident. I may not want to do trauma. I may not want to do critical care. I may not want to do pediatric surgery, false. But point being, this doesn't matter to me. Why should I care? Well, look, there's a variety of reasons you should care. First, forget the fact that you're even in healthcare. I mean, you're a citizen. You're part of the fabric of this community. And the reality is, is that we have kids that are going to school that can't focus on education because they're worried about being shot. We have people going to places of worship that are wondering, is this when it's going to happen? We have, you know, young kids that are going to country concerts and, and bars that don't have the safety that, frankly, you know, we expect and that we hope for in America. So, the first thing I would say is it has nothing to do with you being a clinician taking care of these patients. But let's talk about you being a clinician. The reality is is that you are a general surgery resident, so regardless of what specialty you go into, at some point in your training, 
if you're a general surgery resident in America, you've probably faced a patient who has been a victim of gun violence. And I would just ask you the question of really thinking about those families. And in your heart of hearts, like, do you feel that these preventable issues are things that we should just be treating after the fact? And the answer to me is no. It, treating them after the fact and not working on how, on ways on how to prevent them it is the same as saying if someone showed up to my trauma center and I said, no, I'm not going to do CPR on them or resuscitate them. I think it's malpractice. We have a responsibility to figure out how to care for these patients from prior, so before the injury happens, to long after they leave the hospital. And the one thing that I would add to that, I'll paraphrase Barbara Barlow, who was one of the pioneers in injury prevention and preventing window falls in New York City. And in her words, she says that it's immoral not to try and prevent the injuries in the injured kids that you're trying to take care of. And then I think the one other thing that we enjoy as surgeons who care for uh, injured patients is we have a platform to talk about this issue that no one else has. And what, what Joe and I realize, and fortunately many others realize, is that we can impact many more lives than the patients we're caring for by advocating for policies which are going to put into legislation sensible policies that can prevent injuries. So that's why it's critically important that uh, trauma surgeons are involved in issues like this. We'll add to that. Those, those changes don't happen quickly. And, you know, it's interesting because I think in society we're focused on having this like real active change that happens overnight. And, you know, we want that, whether we're talking about weight loss or whatever other issue we're facing, right? And that's not the case, especially when it comes to policy. But as Dr. Campbell alluded to, the impact that you can have on populations is tremendous. To close things out, in America, in 2019, is this even a winnable fight? I, I think it is. So I think there's a couple important things to recognize. The first is that it can be frustrating to sometimes see what happens at the federal and national level, right? Because there's really a, lo a lack of inaction. But in America, most governing happens at the local and state level. Last year, 67 pieces of legislation were passed regarding common sense gun reform. So while it can sometimes be depressing to see you know, all the partisan politics that happens nationally, we should understand that the local and state level, we're starting to see change. And we're also starting to see, I think, in my mind, what's a generational gap difference. The older generation thinks a lot differently than the younger generation that's coming up through the ranks. And I don't think a lot of people are paying attention to that, but I think that that is going to change the trajectory and the path that we're headed on because <clears throat> these young people are not messing around and you know they are uh, I think providing an example that we should have been providing for them and that is going to really I think uh, ensure that we hold our elected officials responsible uh, when they're in that office so uh, 
yeah, it, it's it's kind of frustrating, but I, I would say that there's hope. Yeah, I'll just add on to what you know Joe has said very articulately is that you know this is a complex social problem, and it would be great if we could solve it in um, in six months or a year. But there's no way we're going to, and and we probably will never prevent every firearm injury. But we can certainly do better than we've done over the last 50 years. And if we, you know, keep the pressure up and we have people like Joe Sacron, who is just a tireless advocate for this issue. And if we get behind him and we encourage the young people like each of you guys who are doing, you know, tackling this issue, uh, you know, we really can make a difference. And, you know, in 5, 10, 15 years, we're going to see uh, fewer people dying of gun injuries in the United States. So I want to end with each of you telling us in our audience your, what you want them to take away, the key points or assignments or, you know, missions that you have to give them. But before we get there, you guys agree on everything we've talked about here thus far. Is there anything that you disagree about? Well, I'm sure there are things that, that, that Joe and I, you know, disagree about if we were to really get down, you know, into the weeds. Uh, but we're not going to solve this issue by disagreeing with each other. We're going to solve this issue by working together. And I, I think what's been sorely lacking in this debate for at least my lifetime is people saying, hey, how can we work together on this and, 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 and come up with a solution that we can both agree with or at least mostly agree with? You know, that's what's going to make a difference. I think what, what happens too often is it becomes a partisan debate at the fringes and, you know, nothing meaningful gets accomplished. You know, I'll, I'll just give you one, you know, simple example of progress that's been made. At the at American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma, when I first started, someone said, why aren't we tackling the issue of gun violence? And the head of the Injury Prevention and Control Committee said, you know, that's a waste of time. You know, we're not going to devote any time to that because we're not going to get anywhere. And then Sandy Hook happened. And there has been an enormous amount of progress over the last, you know, five to, to eight years. And, um, you know, so, so we're making progress, but it's not going to happen overnight. And we've just got to keep plugging away. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. I think the college has done an incredible job of really being the leaders and on the forefront of tackling this issue in a very thoughtful way. And, you know, your question is interesting because... My final comments were going to be the fact that you can see, you know, you have Dr. Campbell here as a gun owner. I'm not a gun owner. Yet, we agree on most things. I'm sure there's stuff that we may not agree upon. But the majority of things we agree upon. And that's, I think, what's missing in the discussion that's happening nationally. Because nationally, it seems that we're so polarized on this issue, when as a country we are not. And so we have, I think, a responsibility to communicate that message. And, you know, when I think about, you know, what is my message to everyone listening? Well, each and every one of us, we have to have a role to play in this process. You know, most people don't believe that they can actually make a difference. That's why the voter turnout rate in this country is so low. And that's not only false, but we currently... Um, live in a time where the political ecosystem is so divided that not only can we make a difference, but we must make a difference. And so I hope that, you know, whether it's, you know, in your own backyards, you know, your city councils, your PTA meetings, do something, right? Uh, and together, I think we can 
actually make communities safer across this country. Well, Dr. Campbell, Dr. Sakharin, thank you so much for this incredible honor and privilege to sit with you today and to discover that despite all the differences that may exist, there may be a lot more commonality and that if we use that as motivation to push this issue forward, this is in fact a winnable fight. And that although this may take a long time, it is absolutely worth the effort. So thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking with you guys this evening. Here to speak to us on gun violence as a public health issue is Dr. Joseph Sakharin, Assistant Professor of Surgery at Johns Hopkins University and Director of Emergency General Surgery. You know, I think over the past couple days, watching what's been going on at this meeting over social media has been extremely impressive because not only have you all put issues like social justice on the map and made it front and center of your meeting, but you've also put topics like fire injury prevention here. And I think this is something that all of us as clinicians, all of us as people who care for injured patients need to think about a little bit more. And I can't really begin talking to you about this topic without telling you my story. I was born just outside our nation's capital in Fairfax, Virginia. The son of immigrant parents that came to this country in search of those hopes and dreams that so many of us strive for. And during my senior year of high school, my life really changed. It was after the first football game of the year, hanging out with some high school friends. And as I turned around, I saw flashes of light. That's what I remember about the moment I was shot. Flashes of light. People running around me screaming, my white shirt covered in blood, my friends frantic, imploring me to lie down. And as I did, I began to choke on blood. Later, I would find out that the 38 caliber bullet that ripped through my throat and injured my carotid artery. And that night, my trauma surgeon was Bob Ahmed, who saved my life by punching a hole in my windpipe. And Dr. Mukherjee, my vascular surgeon, who took a piece of vein from my left leg and patched the hole in my carotid artery. So it's these individuals, along with their teams, that gave me this second chance. Now, I don't know how many of you were at 17, but I think I love this quote by Brad Paisley where he says, at 17, it's hard to see past Friday night. And to me, what that means is at 17, you don't realize that you're mortal. You don't appreciate the people you have in your life. And frankly, most of us, we have no idea what we want to do for the rest of our lives. And that was me. And a few months after my injury, I really came to a different realization. 
I was standing in the bathroom looking at the mirror. I had a tracheostomy tube. I had these beet red scars up and down my neck. And what I didn't notice was my father was standing at the doorway. And I think he saw the look of despair in my eyes. And he walked in and he said, listen, Joe. He said, what happened to you was terrible. But you have two options. The first is you can feel sorry for yourself. Or the second is you can take this terrible incident and try to impact the lives of other people. And so that moment really changed the trajectory of my life. It really inspired me to go into medicine. It inspired me to become a trauma surgeon. And it's what got me to continue thinking, how do we work beyond simply the trauma bay or our operating rooms? And so I wouldn't be here today without these people in my life that have been there through good times and bad. And what was really amazing is that, you know, as you progress throughout your life, sometimes you don't know exactly where you're going. But when you look back every now and then, you realize how all the steps you took got you to where you're at today. And when I finished medical school, I had a chance to go back and train at the hospital where I was a patient at. And not only train there, but train under the surgeons that saved my life. And it was an incredibly rewarding opportunity, but it was also a terrifying one. In fact, sometimes I would be trying so hard and my hand was shaking. They would joke around and say, hey, did you take your Parkinson meds today? So it was one of those moments where it really came full circle. And when I left to go to the University of Pennsylvania, that's when I really then started to understand the aspects of not just caring for the critically injured, but also trying to determine systematic approach to trauma care in this country. And I continued to push myself and say, how do we think beyond these four walls? And so I had spent a year at the Bloomberg School of Public Health, and I love their motto, which says, protecting health, saving lives millions at a time. I think that this motto reflects both the possibility and the responsibility that we have in trying to reduce these public health crises. And for me, that happens to be fire injury. I think the other thing that we've started to see is that in the latter half of the 20th century, a lot of us in medicine or at least of the prior generations, maybe some of you, I think somewhat got disengaged from the business aspect of medicine. We got disengaged from the policy aspect. I think it's one of the reasons we're facing such problems with our healthcare system today. And so that really got me to thinking that I need to develop those skills. And I spent a year down the street at the Kennedy School where I tried to develop some of those theoretical aspects. But frankly, I would not be here today without the reflection of so many of my mentors that have really allowed me to maximize my God-given potential. So I just want to just say a couple quick things. The first is that I think it's important to recognize our own implicit bias. And as a victim of gun violence, as objective as I try to be about this topic, I recognize that 
I might not be all the time. The second is I am a board member of the Brady campaign. And the third is I do, like many of you, care for injured patients. So this is a photo from when I was in the fire department. And, you know, some of you might look at this photo and say, oh, there's Sakran again, another photo op as the building behind him burns down. But perception is not always reality. So this was a training exercise. And we had just come out of the building as the other team went back in. And I put this up here to make the point that when we're talking about emotionally difficult topics, we really need to hold our judgment. We really need to be able to see all the perspectives. How many times have you been in a meeting and you hear someone that says something that's not correct? What happens when they do that? Well, you stop listening, and we know that 90% of communication is nonverbal, so they stop listening, and communication breaks down not just for that one meeting, but for future interactions because you remember that's the person that said something I didn't really agree with. So let's really hold our judgment and really understand some of these perspectives. I know a lot of you know these stats, and the deaths that we see on a daily basis is just a small part of this. For every death, there's about two to three injuries, and that's probably an underestimate because we don't really do a good job of surveilling the non-fatal injuries, which are so important because we know that the recidivism rate is so high in this country. In fact, can be as high as 55%, depending upon where you go. And we know that this affects the population that a lot of you primarily take care of. Some of you might not be surprised to know that one out of three children have a gun in the home. There are over 300 million farms in this country. But I think we should all be surprised that nearly 5 million children live in homes with unlocked and loaded weapons. If you talk to any responsible gun owner, they will tell you this is unacceptable. And this is one of the reasons that firearms are the second leading cause of death for American children and teens. A lot of people don't talk about the suicide piece because they say, well, suicide, that's not gun violence. But in fact, I think it is. In fact, suicide is a violent act against one's own self. And it's important because as we think of these different aspects that we're seeing, our intervention is not going to be the same for each of these groups. And when you look at our homicide rate, how you break it up actually makes a difference. So you can see here, this is all ages and gender. Well, what happens when I look at white males? Well, that rate drops. Okay. What happens when I look at young white males? Now that rate has gone up. What about black males? What about young black males? So you can see here that there is a disparity that exists within the population when we're talking about homicides. And in fact, black males are 15 times more likely than white males to be injured in assaults that involve firearms. And we're going to get back to this in a second. I know that what many of us see are these mass shootings. And I know it takes up a lot of the media attention for obvious reasons. We, see, we saw it in Charleston, in Southern Springs, in Vegas, in Parkland. 
And when you look at what's happened in 2018, you can see that these numbers are unacceptable. And it's not just these numbers, it's the fact that the frequency of these mass shootings continue to increase as time goes on. One of my colleagues, Dr. Campbell, who works at SFGH, came out after the YouTube shooting. And he was surprised to see that there were a bunch of media standing out there. And he said to them, where were you yesterday when four African-American men came into our trauma center? The point is that there are young black men that are being killed on the streets of cities like Baltimore, Chicago, Philadelphia, and their stories often go untold. We have a responsibility to tell those stories. We also have a responsibility to demystify the myths that exist. People always say, oh, well, it must be a mental health problem. We know that only 4% of violence is associated with a mental disorder. But what about if you look at suicides? Well, that's a little bit different because we know there is a correlation between suicides and mental health disease. And in fact, we've seen the suicide rate increase since 2007, year after year. Now, you might ask, well, why is this so important? For a variety of reasons, but it's also important for us as a community because no one person, no one organization is going to be able to solve this. In fact, when you look at someone that decides to commit suicide, from the time they decide to commit suicide till their first attempt, 70% happen within one hour. So that means that after they make that decision, it's too late for us to try to intervene. We have to empower the community to try to figure out those loved ones around us and determine whether or not they're a danger to themselves or others. So when you look at this from a public health perspective and a public policy perspective, it's extremely difficult. Yesterday, before I, I went into work, I was, I was getting a haircut, and I was looking at the license, and I noticed, I said, oh, you know, look, how many states license professional haircutters? What do you all think? All of them. Yeah, you'd be correct. What about federal dealer license? The disparity is tremendous. So why is it so difficult? Well, gun policy is difficult for a variety of reasons, but there's probably two main ones. The first is the structure of our government, but the second is the effectiveness of the gun lobby. And we saw this in 2010 after Citizens United when there was an influx of campaign spending. And you know what? The reality is, is this doesn't represent the American people because the majority of Americans have a lot more in common than they have that's dissimilar. And that's what's sad. And so it's work like this, looking at background checks and other aspects that make us realize the importance of what we as scientists must do, the importance of, of research. And I know a lot of you are probably familiar with this, but Art Kellerman published this in the 90s. And this was one of the articles that really got under the skin of the NRA because of the publicity it got. And essentially it said that a firearm in the home is associated with an increased risk of suicide. And so they launched a big public campaign that led to the Dickey Amendment. Now let's 
dispel one myth, one myth here. There's never been a ban on research of farm injury prevention. If you look at the wording, it simply banned advocating or promoting gun control. And that's important. So then why did the research stop? Well, not only was this amendment introduced, but they stripped the CDC of $2.6 million. Now, do any of you think that's a random number? That's actually the amount that they spent the year prior on farm injury prevention. So all of this is connected. And when you look at what we are spending on other very rare diseases from a federal dollar perspective, the disparity is tremendous. How many of you in here have seen one of these diseases? I don't see many hands. I know it's a light in my face, but I only see a few hands, right? Not surprising. What about firearms? Take a look at that, right? Everyone now raises their hands. Thank you, Dr. Farm. So we have to change our approach to this. We have to really start focusing on this like the public health problem that it is. You know, in the 60s and 70s, when people were dying of fatalities, we didn't get rid of cars. We came up with seatbelts and airbags, and we made roads safer. It's that same type of approach that's required. Because what we know is focusing on changing human behavior is not cost-effective. We have to develop a system that allows us to make it less likely to become injured. And we also have to find our own voice. We have seen that happen over the past couple years. This is a great piece by Dr. Goldberg, where she talks about an apolitical profession waking up. We also saw in November what happened in response to the NRA and the fact that we shouldn't be part of this solution. And this was a real eye-opening moment for me because what I came to realize is that the healthcare professionals really needed a platform to ensure that their voice was heard. And in fact, when we started the handle, initially the first day was like 500 followers, and within a week, that number went up to over 20,000. And this isn't just physicians, this is nurses and researchers, and not just people from within the U.S., but people outside of the U.S. And in fact, those were perhaps the most interesting comments because they said, you know what? We actually don't know what it's like to have to deal with all these injuries. There's other ways to make your voice heard. There's Peter uh, Masiakos and Cornelia Griggs who wrote this great piece called The Quiet Room in the New England Journal of Medicine, right? There's opportunities to write for Huffington Post and other op-ed pieces. You could do different videos. So there's so many ways. But you know, it wasn't enough just to have our own voice heard. What we had to do is ensure that the voice of the medical communities were heard and were working together. And so in February of this past year, the American College of Surgeons sponsored the first medical summit on farm injury prevention. And this included APSA. And I'm happy to report that the proceedings are already out. Dr. Bulger and the team did an incredible job of collating all that information, and we were able to get it out in a timely manner. And you can read this. It came out on Monday. But essentially, I think it demonstrates 
a couple important things. And the first is that this is number one, a public health crisis. And number two, we must, we must work together in order to move the needle forward on this issue. So I just want to end with something that you might find a little bit atypical, and that's telling your story. You know, a lot of us in medicine, uh, we do really great work, research-wise, clinically, but one of the things that we often struggle with is how do we transmit all that information to the public? The data doesn't change the hearts and minds of Americans. If you think it does, I think you're grossly mistaken. The data is important, but it's not enough. And so when you look at people like Marshall Gans from the Kennedy School, who is the world expert on, on public narrative, he talks about the story of self, the story of us, and the story of now. And essentially he says, listen, when the first century Jerusalem scholar, Rabbi Halal, was approached by someone, and this person said to them, hey, how do I know what I'm supposed to do in the world? And he said, well, you have to ask yourself three questions. The first is, if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? Now, this is not a selfish question. This is a self-regarding question. In other words, if you take on a leadership position, you need to know what they expect from you, and they need to know what they, can ex- what they expect. The second is, but when I am for myself, what am I? And I think this highlights the fact that we don't function within just ourselves, our own silos. We're really an interdependent group of individuals, and we have to function that way in order to be effective. And then the last is, and if not now, when? And I think this just demonstrates that if you have an idea, get it out there. Let people vet it. Don't hold on to it for a year. Business folks do this really well. And I think sometimes in medicine, we have a hard time doing this. You know, people don't believe in how you do something. Some of you might have seen this great talk by Simon Sinek about the why, the how, and the what. The way you convince people is you get them to believe in what you believe in. The why is so powerful. And that's what allows you allows us to go from value, whatever that value is, to action. You know, since Parkland, there's been over 1,200 kids that have been shot and killed. And I will tell you that I think the young people in this country have really re-energized our nation, and they frankly set an example that we should be setting for them. I'm, I'm so tremendously proud of them. You know, we talk about telling your own story, and I'll just tell you that I never realized the power of my own story until I was at Penn. We would bring these underserved kids from the community, and the first time I did this, you know, I give them a tour of the trauma center, then I talked to them about gun violence. And as most teenagers, they were kind of paying attention, but not really. And then I told them my story. And all of a sudden, all of their eyeballs focused on me. It was a reaction that I wasn't expecting. And it was something that really, honestly, frankly, I'd never seen before. And so I asked them a question. I said, how many of you in here have personally been affected by gun violence or your families have been affected? And nearly every one of them raised their hands. 
So what that moment taught me is that I went from being this person in a white coat to someone that I could actually relate to what these individuals are seeing day in and day out within their own communities. And your story doesn't have to be as dramatic as being shot in the throat. Each and every one of you can have an impact, and in fact, you must have an impact. If you don't tell your story, other people will. And when you look at this graphic, I don't need a caption because they've done such a great job of telling their story. So I leave you with a question. The first is, what's your story, right? You have to figure it out and figure out how to tell it. You know, I love what I do. And I got this in a fortune cookie and says, to love what you do and feel that it matters, how could anything be more fun? It's absolutely true. And we do such great work where we save so many lives. This is a great book by Kathy Shore that documents 101 survivors. But the reality is, is that we don't save everyone. And the worst part of my job is having to tell mothers, fathers, sisters, and brothers that their child that left that morning is never coming home again. I recently had a 17-year-old that was shot in the back of the head, essentially executed. And I had to go up to the ICU, and we have Mark, one of our residents here, he knows how often we do this. I had to go up to the ICU to talk to this kid's mom. And I began telling her about the devastating traumatic brain injury. And she began telling me about her son. She said, you know, he was the first in our family to graduate from high school. He was having aspirations to go to college, just like all of you. None of those dreams will ever get fulfilled. And at that moment, she looked up, and I think she saw the devastation in our eyes. And she did something that I'll never forget. She walked over, and she put her hand on my shoulder, and she said, are you okay? Now, just imagine that for one second. Here is a mother that just lost her child, and she's asking us if we're okay. It's moments like that which restore my faith in humanity, and it's moments like that which push me to get up day in and day out to try to reduce farm-related injury and death in America. I'm standing here before all of you, but really the people that are doing the important work are my partners back at home, which is taking care of the patients. Thank you all so much for being here and for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. 